because I'll have you up and down so much here if you're able to. We're going to turn right to the text here in just a moment of time. God bless each and every one of you for being here today. We thank you for coming out. Let me say this real quickly. We've been meaning to do so last week. We forgot to, but we want to say a very special God bless you and thank you to Sister Mary Lynn Evans for the effort that she made in the foyer, and I thank the Yoders as well, decorating the church. Um, she did a great job, put in time, invested time, and uh, we really appreciate it. We're going to go right to the Word of God. If you're a visitor, thank you for being here with us. There should be a visitor card in front of you in a seat. If not, I know there's one on the table out in the foyer. We would like to have a record of your visit with us today. You're in the right place at the right time. I truly have a heart that's prepared to share this Word. Today, we're going to go to Romans chapter number 13. If you came to First Assembly thinking that we were going to kind of just be... Um, you know, rallying around the nativity this morning, then you probably have missed it a little bit because I think there's something that's just stirring in my heart that I just can't, I can't just lay these things down. I can't pretend. I'm, I've never been somebody that could pre, be a pretender. You know, I'm either, I'm, I don't have to have an edge, but at the same time, I have to have an authenticity. I have to be sincere in what I believe in the way that I act and feel. Here's a text of scripture that is often left the church um, perplexed in relation to our Christian conviction and our Christian obligation and the civil, the civic government. It's a text that's given to us by the Apostle Paul, and we're going to read about three verses from the pen of the Apostle Peter. We're only read seven verses here in Romans 13, then we're going to dialogue with this. Here it says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid." For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. I kind of doubt real quickly if there's a lot of Christmas sermons across the United States that are using Romans 13 as the backdrop today. But if y'all bear with me, we'll get somewhere here in a few moments. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For, for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Rendered, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And now we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter number 2, and we're going to read from the Apostle Peter's pen as he in one sense, picks up the exact same argument. We're going to try to understand this, hopefully, in its proper context here in a few moments of time. Now, the Apostle Peter, he, if I will, may say, I may say he may even use stronger language. Verse 13 says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent, paralleling with the Apostle Paul's exhortation, as, uh, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. How many believe that's important right there? And that verse 17 says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now, as you glance over these scriptures, I've had a lot of opportunity this week to, to study and meditate upon these particular texts of scripture, and it's maybe um, the first exposure to you of these texts. Obviously, at the surface level, it creates a perplexity, doesn't it? When you read these, you have to ask yourself the, some, some really hard questions that we're going to in a few moments of time. We believe that this is the authoritative Word of God, and God speaks to, it, to us from His Word, doesn't He? And we're going to trust the Lord to give us direction because we need it today. I don't necessarily 
have a, a title for the message today. I'm still continuing in my series addressing controversial subjects and using to a degree Jesus' own life or teaching, but also unafraid to extend into the epistles. So you see where we're going to be at today. Let's just let things unfold in front of us, if we might. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are joined together. The prayers of those that have been on the platform that have preceded me have already, God, undergirded this moment right now. They've asked God, in faith, that you would let preaching come easy in this house. And I concur, let preaching come easy. But I also add, in agreement with those prayers, let the heart of the listener be prepared to receive the engrafted word. That your word plainly says is able to save the soul. So, Father, today, as me, the speaker, and this, this, this beautiful congregation, as the listener, God, today, let us be joined together in one mind, in one accord, that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. And you can be seated. Thank you so much for coming out and being a part of our services right now. And once again, I do appreciate all the effort that is being made with our outreaches that are taking place today, this week as well, the effort that's gone from JoJo and Chelsea and Aaron and the other staff members and their collective uh, efforts, I commend them for it. And we're trusting that God's going to use First Assembly to continue to put our thumbprint on this community. But listen, one of the things that we really believe that God has called First Assembly for is to more than just pass out gifts at Christmas time, and that is to be a light. And that light is to be a light to truth and to be unashamed or unafraid to tackle very difficult subject matters from the pulpit. That's my personal conviction. There are a lot of churches that, and I say this very respectfully, and pastors that are afraid to delve into the controversial issues that can often and that have already divided our nation but can also even divide the body of Christ. But I... I have a conviction in my heart that it's my responsibility to not shun these, these very difficult subjects, to bring them up. The reason I have this conviction is, is I believe that the culture through the media speaks nonstop 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is available at your fingertips continually. And people give the church just a small window of time to give counterbalance to some of the things that are being shared and communicated in our time today. I want to, before we begin to dialogue this passage in Romans chapter number 13, I want to take you back prior to this, and I want to take you into the life of Jesus for just a moment, of an expectation that was in the heart and mind of Jesus's disciples. Now, if you have studied the Gospels, you're, 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 I believe that your, your processing of the Gospels will begin to shift. You're first captivated by simply the, the, the wonderment of Jesus' miraculous ministry. Obviously, that captures your attention. The Bible says that those miracles are recorded, that we might believe that he is the Son of God. So we, we still, even after these many, many years, we stand in awe of the wonder-working power of God that was demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, correct? Then we stand in awe of his teaching. Matter of fact, those that listened to him said, never has a man spoke like this man. I still stand in awe as how that he was able to confound those that were trying to confound him. How he would often turn the table on them and they would leave perplexed at his ability to speak so eloquently and yet authoritatively. But there was something, but there, I believe that as you follow Jesus in the Gospels, you'll begin to observe that the disciples that were following Jesus weren't just a part of a movement, a religious movement, but they believed that they were a part of a kingdom movement, that there was an extension, that they, were, that they were a part of a cultural shift, that something would take place that would, uh, that would make the, the people of the land of Israel reattached to their ancient heritage. I've shared many, many times about that it, there was a belief and the cry for the Messiah was so great in those days, it was simply because of Roman occupation. Oddly enough, if you study the intertestament period, it was the Israelites themselves that had called for Rome to intervene because of their inner fighting. And so Rome now has occupied Israel, and we see that, and we read that through all the Gospels, uh, writers as they record, whether it be the magistrates, or whether it be the kings, the sons of Herod, or whether it be Pontius Pilate, but they are all 
they are all servants of Caesar who is uh, housed in Italy and Rome. And so let me just go a little bit farther into seeing this. So the disciples, to the very end, had a, had a mindset that they expected military resistance. If you read the scriptures and you look at it through that narrative, that you can see that even at the very, at the, what's called the Last Supper, Jesus made a change in his dialogue with them. And he said, you know, sell your cloak if you need to and go buy a sword. And they had not heard Jesus talk like that previously. Now, in their hearts, they had been waiting for this day. You know, they were there as they came down the mountain and went into the Kidron Valley and up and ascended into Jerusalem with Jesus and what's known as the triumphal entry. And they believed that they were seeing seeing biblical history unfold in their eyes that the son of David was coming as a conquering king to regain and to reclaim the, the vacated throne of David. And that when Jesus, man, that was the spark. That's all they needed. Jesus said, if you got two cloaks, go and sell it and at least buy a sword. And somebody said, and they pulled out, like he didn't know. But they pulled out and said, Lord, we already got two. Jesus said, that's enough right there. And so you even know that later that night upon the betrayal of, of Jesus' uh, disciple Judas, leading the Roman soldiers and the, and, the, and the Sanhedrin to him as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a tumult that took place, and there was confusion. And obviously, the apostle Peter was one that had one of those swords. He draws it out in the darkness, and he severs. And he didn't intend to cut the ear off of the servant of the high priest, uh, his ears, right ear. He didn't intend to cut the ear off. He intended to cut his head off. And so, and but when Jesus stopped him, so when his disciples, who he said, hey, if you've got a coat, go sell it, buy a sword. But when they got ready to use the sword, Jesus stopped them, wouldn't allow them to use the sword. And then he said this. He said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he healed the servant's ear and then went with them as he was betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And so remember, even the next day, When he stood before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said this, Pilate standing in full arrogance, standing in the strength of Rome, Pontius Pilate looks at him and says, don't you know that I have the power to condemn you or to release you? And Jesus, meek and humble, looked back at him and said, you would have no power at all against me if it were not given to you from above. And he said this, Jesus said this, he said, my servants, he said, my servants will not fight. He said, because my kingdom is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so that was something that caused a shift in the minds of Jesus' disciples. But they still held on to it even 40 days later when Jesus has died, been buried, resurrected. And 40 days of his teaching concerning the kingdom of God has taken place. He's now on the Mount of Olives. He is about to ascend into the presence of the living God. Back restored to the place, the prominence of his father at the right hand of the father. When his disciples asked him one final time, is this the time? You know, and you held us off for 40 days. And he said, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember what Jesus said? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons in which the Father's going to restore his power, but it's unto you, right, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we find something, we find ourselves caught in a, and I say it often, a quagmire. It's perplexing when we see this. What drove this ideology and this resistance slash revolution in the minds of Jesus' disciples? Have you ever stopped to think about that? What was in their mind? What gave them such an urgency in their, in their heart that they believed that when they were following Jesus, who was meek and lowly, sitting on the fold of the ass, the Bible says, and being journeyed down into the Kidron Valley, up into the city of Jerusalem, what was in their mind? What, when, they thought, when they felt like they were a part of something historic, a movement, what was driving their ideology? It was Jewish history. It was Jewish history that had been filled with military compa- campaign and conquest. Some of, the, of Israel's most beloved leaders had been both prophets, patriarchs, but also military leaders. They had been taught since the earliest days as they had learned about some of the heroes of ancient Israel. Men and women, we, they're reminded of Joshua, the son of Nun, who led Israel in the conquest 
of Canaan's land. They remember how that Deborah and Barak stood together and withstood the, the enemy. They were reminded how that Gideon had been threshing, in a, uh, threshing wheat in a wine vat when the Lord spoke to him and said, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor, and through you, God's going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. They had been taught about Jephthah, and they had also been taught about the strength of Samson. And certainly in those are a great list, and that's just a, small, just a small portion of those that they could look back in their Jewish learning and they could see these patriots or these psalmists or these prophets, yet also some of them military leaders, but none, none could measure up to the king of kings in their mind at that particular time, that of David. The sweet psalmist of Israel who had been chosen from his father's sheepfold to lead the people of Israel. And I said it on Wednesday night, and I said it in the battlefield against the enemy, David was undefeated. His only failure was when he went up into the, the rooftop of his own house and peered over at the lovely Bathsheba as she bathed, and he failed morally. But on the battlefield, he was unequal because God was with him. God blessed him. Whether, the Bible says whithersoever he went, when he went out or when he came in, God was with him. And the, there was a prophetic promise made to David that of his seed, of his loins, one of his children, one of his offspring, a great, 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 great grandson would sit on the vacated throne of his father David. And during this time of Roman occupation and, and possession of the promised land and when there's uh, such, such oppression and taxation is high and they're so grieved in heart because the Romans are pagan and they worship a plurality of gods, they are crying out for a deliverer. And when Jesus came down that hillside that day on that foal, Zechariah the prophet had prophesied, Hundreds of years earlier, your king, your king shall come to you, meek and lowly, riding on the foal of the ass. And so they knew that this was their moment. So that was what was driving them. But oddly enough, Christ prevented his followers from advancing the kingdom by the sword. But he would advance the kingdom, and he would expect them to advance the kingdom. But it wouldn't be through the metal, the forged metal of swords that had been forged in the, uh, in, in, the, in the fires of the smiths around Israel, but they would advance the kingdom by something far greater, far greater than any earthly sword, and that would be the sword of the Spirit, the Word of the living God, that God would take the authoritative voice that would quicken the Word in their heart and mind and their spirit, and they would advance the kingdom of God. How many of you know that kingdom is still advancing to this very day? And this very hour today, right now, yeah, you too, you were in darkness, you were in bondage, the enemy had you in chains of sin and darkness, but somebody spoke a prophetic word of the sword, of the spirit of the living God, and chains fell off of you, and shackles broke, and you were delivered from sin by the power and the virtue of the preaching of the word of God. It's still the most powerful tool, it's the most powerful weapon that we have in our arsenal today, amen? But then conflict began to arise, situations, interactions began to arise as the church grew beyond the Jewish nation, and Gentiles began to be converted. Because up until that point, it was still a Jewish mindset. It was the preservation of a Jewish culture, a Jewish nation, with the Messiah as their king. But as Gentiles began to be converted, what would God expect of both Jews and Gentiles living in Gentile nations? What would their role toward government be? Thus the need for the writings of the apostle in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter chapter number 2. For in those two texts of scripture, it's clear to you and I that the apostle is teaching respect for civil government. Come on, that's a, that's a terrible place to be quiet. Respect for civil government. Right, that government originated in the heart and the mind of God. That God's the God of order. Right? Without order, there would be anarchy. Right? There has to be some civil government. There has to be something that keeps us functioning within the boundaries that God intended for 
us as human beings living on this planet. And so in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul addresses some things here. And we read it, and I don't necessarily know that I'm going to be able to dialogue it in its great entirety today. But I wanted you to see a text. It's a very controversial text. It's a text that actually was very pivotal in something that I'm going to talk to you about here in just a few moments. But I want you to see for just a moment of time this text of Scripture that both Paul and Peter teach personal Christian civic responsibility. A true believer should be a good citizen of the state. Is it fair to ask for just a little more volume in the monitor for me just real quickly? Just a little bit. We are still, listen to this, a true believer, I believe, should be a good citizen of the state in which he dwells. Right? No matter what nation that you're a part of, you and I are still salt and light. We are, it's our intention to influence and to preserve even within government. And it starts with respecting laws and leaders. Right? I believe that today, and I, and I, and I want to encourage you. But as you read that text with me, and you see how, how uh, prolific the apostle addresses some things here, without us getting to dialogue it in its full detail, immediately there are some greater questions that arise that seem to be ignored by the text. Because the Bible uses here strong language. It speaks there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. If you resist the power, you're resisting the ordinance of God. If you resist, you're going to receive yourself damnation. A ruler is not intended in the mind of God to be a terror to good works, but to evil. If you find yourself on the wrong side of that argument, you're finding yourself fighting against God. Right? It's a, it's, it's a conviction. It's something we have to settle within ourselves. But again, obviously, or seemingly ignored by the text are some very difficult questions. So we didn't read in Romans 12, but in verse number 19 or verse number 18, it says, If peaceable, it says, If it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. And then it said this in verse 19, it said, Rather, beloved, avenge not yourself, but give place unto wrath. So then you ask yourself, Well, what? Wait a minute. Is that in all situations? In every situation, do I give place to wrath? I have a question. Can I then defend myself? Can I defend my family? Can I defend my property? Because if I only read that on the surface level, then I find myself caught in this place of I'm unsure. He said every, that word every, oftentimes we simply put it as a blanket coverage. Or is it very important that we understand this in its proper context? Because I want you to ask yourself that question. You're at your home. And you hear a banging sound inside one of your children's bedrooms. And you go in there and an intruder has come in through the side window. And has come in there to steal one of your children. And yes, that happens even within the United States of America. And you ask yourself in that moment, am I to give place to wrath? Am I to watch this thief take my child screaming and kicking out of the bedroom window? I was there to preserve them. So you have to have the proper understanding so that's a question. Can you defend yourself, your family, or your property? Question again, what if civil government asks you to do things that are against your conscience? Hmm. And what about your scripture? What about the scripture? What if the civil government asks you to do things that, that your conscience is shaped by your scriptural belief? Or what even if they ask you to do things that are against natural law? What are you going to do? So really, the question is this. And I wrote it this way, and this could have been my, my text, or this could have been my title. I would have asked, when is it lawful to become unlawful? That's a fair question. I told you that several weeks ago, as things began to unfold cataclysmically here in the United States with the contended election, I began to go back and read the book about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, if you haven't read that, I encourage you to do so. And I'm not somebody that's standing in front of you that's a great reader. I don't read 30 books, 40 books a year. I don't do that, but I, I read some. And this particular book is my second time to go through it. Uh, I wish they'd make a movie because it's 500 pages. And so, but nonetheless, <laughs> I've read it again, and, 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 I'm, and I, I look at it, and I, I see, I see the, the, the ethical and the moral question because Nazism professed faith in God. Many believed for a great period of that time period that Hitler had been sent by God to deliver the German people. And so there was conflicting uh, positions. And so here's a question. Here's an example again. When is it lawful to become unlawful? If you resisted Nazism in Germany as a German citizen, were you a traitor who is guilty of treason? Or should you be remembered as a freedom fighter, a martyr for a righteous resistance? That's the risk that you would have to take. 
So there's a historical application to Romans chapter number 13 that we want to establish real quickly before we get farther into this text, into this, this argument for a moment of time. The historical application to Romans 13, at least by the scholars that I read and the theologians that I read, is that Christians in Rome had arrived at the conclusion that because they were in Christ, they were free from law. That's a term that Paul uses in his writings to both the church at Galatia and the church at Rome, and they had extended that to all law, including the law of the Caesars or of the Roman Republic. And so they believed that that had carried over into even their civic duty and even if it was in what would be called and defined as fair civic duty. And so many of them arrived at the place where they are unwilling to pay taxes, nor to follow even the fair civic laws. And Paul the Apostle and the Apostle Peter are both exhorting that that mindset, if that's your mindset, that's erroneous for a true Christian because a true Christian wants to honor civic government. Right? Because Paul had even told Timothy, who was the bishop of Ephesus, and he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, he said, I would that first of all, prayers, giving of thanks, and intercessions be made for all men especially those that are in authority. So listen, you and I, we may disagree with public figures and we may disagree with public policy at times, but we still often pray for those elected leaders, don't we? We do. There's something. There's, we're bound to a conviction. There have been times I've prayed even for those that I have. And I told you my prayer for a few weeks ago, and there are many times I do pray that prayer. Lord, let that person be moved out of that seat and give someone else that seat. Right, I do pray that, but there are times when I know that that's not within the reaches of the moment, and so I do pray God give them wisdom, because God can even use carnal men to make good decisions for the overall good of humanity, correct? Listen, if a rooster could crow and awaken the apostle in his, in, in, when, he, when he denied Christ, right, then God can use even somebody that's elected at an office that has policies that I disagree with, God can still use them. Right? So I believe that. So I, I'm not trying to get away from this, and I'm trying to balance this. I also believe that the apostle Peter and Paul, and this is my personal observation. I didn't find this in any of the theologians that I searched or read their writings or gleaned their writings, is that I also noted, this is my personal note, that I believe that a resistance movement in the first century church by that small Christian sect would have led to even greater persecution by the Roman Empire. And it could have been a possible total genocide upon the early church if they had not simply, if they had not simply said it's our duty to respond. If they say pay the tax, we pay the tax. There were some things that they refused to do. They refused to honor Caesar as God. Caesar was not Lord. Right? How many of you know Jesus was Lord? And Jesus is still Lord. Come on, somebody. Amen. Now, let's just go. Are y'all out there with me today? I'm going somewhere. I'm taking you somewhere. And, uh, and if you'll stay with me, you'll understand where I'm going and why I'm going there. So I'm putting this together. It's kind of just an overview of chapter 13 in the book of Romans and in 1 Peter. I'm not going down, breaking this down verse by verse for you. I wanted to bring you to this place because you have to see that this passage of Scripture has been something that Christian leaders that have been a part of movements and sometimes when governments have fractured in the history of man since the formation of the church and since the apostle wrote this text of Scripture, there have been men and women that have had to wrestle with their place in how to respond to this passage of Scripture. And so when you think about state-sponsored Christianity for just a moment of time, we can look back in history and we can see there was an unholy marriage of state and church. Did y'all know that? An unholy, that was an unholy marriage. It, later, it, it actually led during the Middle Ages to what we called the Dark Ages. And in the Dark Ages, unconverted citizens that were unconverted Christians that were citizens and they were Christian by name and not by true conversion, created just as oppressive and an idolatrous government as Rome did. Let me tell you, the Roman Empire did not die. It just changed. It just switched to the Holy Roman Catholic Church with all of its superstitions and all of its persecution and all of its idolatrous practices. It just simply shrouded itself under another banner. And that was, through, that was true throughout all of Europe. And that was oppressive, and it, was, and, it, and it led eventually to the Protestant Reformation, and then the, there was the fracturing of many state-slash-church coalitions. But the American Republic that you and I are a part of today, and let me go ahead and stress that today, we are not a democracy. 
And you ought to know that. And every time the media keeps trying to come up, be brought back in your mind, says a democracy, a democracy, a democracy is because they want you to arrive at the place where 51% of the people can control your rights and your freedoms that are given to us by the republic because we're not a democracy. We are a republic, a constitutional republic that drew a lot of the truth that we believe in today from the biblical representation that we see in the Old Covenant. But I'll preach that at a later date and time. America was unique in its founding because it was a Protestant nation. For the very first time in the history of the world, a Protestant nation. And though some founding fathers were not Christian, most were. And did you know many believe the founding of the nation was to be of divine destiny? As Israel was a light to monotheism, that there was only one God and there was not a plurality of God, that many of the founding fathers believed that America would be a light to liberty, where you could worship God according to the convictions of your own heart and mind and of your own spirit without government intrusion. Right? Tell that to the people of California today. That's another sermon altogether. And the church and state would not be united like medieval times. But rather, here's what our founding fathers intended to give us. They would give us a state that was founded on principles extracted from biblical teaching of both the old and the new. And so in order to form a new union, a more perfect union, the founders would have to sever ties with the old. In order to sever ties with the old, they would have to face the spiritual contention of Romans chapter number 13. And if you'll take the time to go back and look up in history, you'll find that many of the founding fathers struggled. They struggled and said, what do we do with this? What do we do with Romans chapter number 13? Some looked at it as that any act of severance from Great Britain was an act of treason. And so there was a conflict. America was fighting two wars against Great Britain, but also a little bit of a civil war happening simultaneously during the American Revolution. But the founding fathers, mainly primarily because of the encouragement of the Black Robe Regiment, and the Black Robe Regiment that rightly divided the Word of God brought clarity to Romans chapter number 13. Many of the founding fathers were taught and instructed that Romans 13, it was, it was writing by the pen of the Apostle Paul, is teaching us what good government should be. That good government should be for the good of the people. And that those that lead, lead only by the consent of the governed. But if government becomes tyrannical, then that government, because of the tyrannical leader, it might be a singular leader, or it could be a plurality of leaders, it could be a, a senate or a house, it could be uh, elected leaders, whatever the case, but the moment they become tyrannical, they no longer qualify as good government. And so, though they are exercising the sword, they're the ones that are exercising the sword in vain. And so, there brings about some clarity. And so, those in the American Revolution, then, they came to conclude that Great, Great Britain had become an illegitimate government. Because only government that would govern for the good of the people and by the consent of the governed would be the powers that were ordained of God. There's a great article that I've gotten, if you'll see me after, where it was actually written by Joseph Spurgeon, and he is of no kin to Charles Spurgeon, but he's written a great article on their website called The Sword and the Trial concerning the American Revolution and Romans 13 and what the conviction of the founding fathers that led to the formation of the United States of America. Thus, before the forming of a new union, there had to be a declaration of independence from the old with reasons and, cha and charges listed, the grievances that were listed because in the minds of those that signed the Declaration of Independence, Great Britain was no longer good government. And so the coalition of people that had come together to sever ties with Great Britain was now the good government. Does that make sense to you today? Now, why do I have this down today? Is it fair to ask, are we arriving at a place very similar in our lifetime? I'm going to tell you that's a question that's going to be, getting, to be asked more and more in the days ahead. Let me just tell you, that's a question. So I know you came here today for me to sing, you know, sing Christmas songs to you and to tell you everything was going. I'm, I came along to tell you we're living at a climatic moment in our history, a moment that's going to define our future. And we're going to have to know what side of the argument are we going to be on. We're going to have to be very careful. Are we going to be like sheep led to the slaughter? Are we going to be aware of biblical principles that we're willing to stand for and even to? America's history has both been glorious 
and yet also filled with tragedy. There have been examples of moral excellence, but there have also been examples of moral failure. Every action of the government has not always been the right choice. And there's been a constant inward struggle between the secular and the sacred that has been present throughout our history. As a Christian citizen in America, here's a question you have to ask yourself because you've got to be very, very careful because once you arrive at your conclusion, it's going to be far-reaching ramifications of the decision that you made. What is that, Pastor Brown? As a Christian citizen in America, should you be involved in the political sphere or should you abandon all to the secularist while you focus entirely on spiritual matters? Because I'm going to tell you, that's what they want you to do. That's what they want you to do. They want you to abandon your rights in the public arena and also in the state because they're sitting there like, they're, they're, they're like vultures ready to pounce. The secularists are. I believe it to be probable in the not-too-distant future that you and I, men and women, young and old, we will be forced to contemplate our response based upon our conviction of Romans chapter number 13. I'm going to say that one more time because no one even responded. I believe it to be highly probable in the not-too-distant future that you will be forced to contemplate your response based upon your understanding of Romans chapter number 13. Godless demands will be placed upon you. You're either going to concur willingly or you will either peaceably or even potentially forcibly resist. Now, I found this to be ironic. That the Apostle Paul and Peter's teaching, when you look at it, it almost seems like that they are leading the sheep right to slaughter, doesn't it? Sometimes Rome didn't care. Have you ever heard, you know when Paul writes the letter to the church at Rome, do you know who the Roman Caesar is? Nero Caesar. His name by number in the Hebrew calendar or the Hebrew numerical system is 666. Maybe the beast that you've been looking for lived during that time period. Did you know he was called the beast because he had great orgies, parties in his palace, and he lit the night sky by Christians being burned at the stake? He was called the beast because they would take slaves and that they would run them out in the field and hide them in the field half naked. And men would come along, including himself, like a deranged animal and would abuse physically and sexually those that were captured in chains. He was a tyrannical beast. And yet Paul, as he writes, he's actually the one that many believe, that most scholars believe, that gave the edict that both Paul and Peter would, would, would be uh, martyred for their faith in Christ. That they would, through the executioner's acts of the iron fist of Rome, both the two apostles upon which the church was built, the apostle Peter first and the apostle Paul, would, he would give the edict that would cause them to lose their life. And yet both of them, in love and compassion to the church, is teaching us that we have a civic responsibility to... To leaders but then the irony of this is but wait a minute what about when those leaders have become violent and have pushed and strained and left us with no place but to resist I remember the Apostle Peter first the Apostle Peter that said submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake in Acts chapter number four the Apostle Peter had preached powerfully in the early days of the church and the Sanhedrin gathered together with the Roman leaders and they looked at the Apostle Peter and they said, Peter, you cannot preach again, ever again in the name of Jesus. And you know what the Apostle Peter said? He said, you're going to have to decide. He said, but whether we should obey you or obey God. He said, whether we should obey your voice or we should obey the voice of God. Because he said, he said we cannot do, but we cannot speak or do the things which we have both seen and heard. And the Apostle Paul knew about biblical history that was filled with heroes of faith, of men and women who died under tyrannical edicts of a resistance of faith. Their refusal to comply, many perished in persecution, others were divinely preserved. And I'm going to set the stage as I close this message today, because I believe cataclysmic moments are in our future. And I know you're saying, Pastor, you're in a strange preacher up here in the hill country of North Arkansas, but I'm going to say, you know what, I might be, I might be somebody put his head on the bosom of Christ and tells you, you need to get your head out of the sand and look around you because this is the, there is a climate that's been changing around us for many years while we come to our church in the four walls of this building and sing kumbaya and think everything is fine while a world out there under the control of the God of this age wants to rob you of every freedom that God has vested in us through our government. So today, I'm going to close with reminding you of two examples. 
into the history of the Jewish people because both Apostle Paul and Peter would have been reminded of these two even as they wrote these words. It was a very difficult time for the people of the land of Israel. It was the time when apostasy had caused their nation to fall into, they were not yet, they were not yet, there, it was a time period when the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem was imminent, but it had not yet taken place. The original temple, the temple that had been built by King Solomon, the temple that had been filled with the glory of God, that temple, but the hundreds of years later, apostasy, time and time again, prophets have warned the people of the coming judgment. And Jeremiah, read it on your own, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, warns the people over and over again of the coming calamity. This time, in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. If you take the time to read about the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, in the, uh, a few hundred years earlier, the northern part of Mesopotamia had been controlled by the Assyrians. The Assyrians had come down in the days of Isaiah in the 700 period before Christ, and they had, uh, they had ravaged war on the northern tribes of the land of Israel, but they had avoided the southern tribes of Judah. But now, 200 years later, Assyria is fading into into history, but Babylon has become the prominent power. Yes, Babylon with the houses of, of, the, of, the, of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yes, it was that Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar took. And when he took, he did not destroy the city initially, but he did take back to Babylon certain chosen men, young men. The scripture says in the book of Daniel that they went through the people and they searched out young men that were, had no blemish, men that had great abilities. And these were just young teenage boys that were taken from their parents and they were brought to a pagan city. And when they were in the pagan city, they were given, they were, they were put in school. They were, it was like a boarding house or a boarding school where they were, going to be ta- they were going to be taught all the laws and the ways and the language of the Chaldeans and they would be used, they would be used to be translators and they would be used to be mediators between the Jewish culture on Babylon, the Jewish populace, and the Babylonian government. And so these were outstanding young men, and the Bible says that there was one in particular, Daniel, by name. I'm going to just paraphrase this for you. You go back and read it on your own, but you've got to understand the full context of this. And Daniel is given the same uh, resources that all the other men that, and young boys that were taken out of, out of Israel. Uh, as a, uh, he was given all the food he wanted, all the drink that he wanted, and all this. But there was something in Daniel that, that was, it was the food that they were feeding him was against the law of Moses. So many of the things were unclean. It was not kosher. And So Daniel simply requested, as a young teenage boy, as a conviction resounds in his heart, Daniel said, you know what, I'm going to ask, I'm going to push away from the pork today, and I'm going to push away from the catfish and 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 the crab that you're giving me, because under the law of Moses, I don't want that. He said, but if you'll just give me beans, I'll eat beans. How many of you know sometimes you got to make a sacrifice for that what you believe in? Oh, that's a terrible amen for a very true point. And so at that moment of time, Daniel just said, I, listen, and the, the, the man that was uh, over him said, look, if, if, if you begin to lose weight and you, your countenance begins to suffer, he said, if you and your friends go in before the king and you don't look as good as the others, he said, I'll tell you who's going to die. I'm going to die. And Daniel said, I'll tell you what. He said, give me a charge. He said, I'll give you this. He said, let me eat beans for 10 days. And then you look at our countenance and see. And you know, at the end of 10 days, the Bible plainly says they were fair and fatter. I love that. Come on, I feel the Lord right there. Fair and fatter just by eating water and beans where everybody else is feasting with their Christmas feast and all these things and hams and, and all this food and all this. Fair and fatter. And then they begin to note that there were giftings and callings in this young man. If you were to take the time to read in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, it was there that King Nebuchadnezzar, the despotic monarch, awakened from his sleep one night and he had had a dream. A dream that he couldn't remember and he couldn't interpret, and he, and he, but he was troubled by it because it, was, it had so troubled his brow that he sweated through the night and he woke up in a frantic moment and he brought in all of his soothsayers and all of his magicians and he demanded two things of them. Number one, tell me the dream that I've forgotten and and then tell me the interpretation of it. The soothsayers and the magicians said, King, there's not a king anywhere in the world that's asked this of the magicians. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you don't give me the interpretation very soon, I'm going to kill you. And then after a period of time, they were unable to, to, to share the dream. And so you know what he did? He passed an edict. And uh, uh, was a lawful edict because he's a despotic monarch. He controls people's life in his hands. And he said, I want all the magicians, the soothsayers. He said, I want them all to die. Every one of them, Daniel and four, three of the Hebrew boys that he had asked to work with him were a part of that group. And when they found out what was going to take place, that they were going to die, they, they begged and they said, give me one night. 
Daniel said, give me one night. And Daniel called these three Hebrew boys around him. How many know there's a power in a prayer meeting? Come on, somebody. Even without a temple, a building, or a church, there's power in a prayer meeting. Call somebody over to your house and let's get together and pray. That's what you need to do. Get together and pray. Not talk about it. How about pray about it? And so they spent the night praying, calling upon the God of heaven. And they said, God, if you don't answer, we're going to die. And somewhere through the night, the Bible says, in a night vision, God came to Daniel. And he told him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation. And Daniel said, hey, 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 in the morning before you kill anybody, let me go in before the king because I got the answer he's looking for. It's a powerful passage. Read it on your own. It'll cause you to jump up and run around your house because there's a God in heaven that knows the secrets of men. The thoughts of our minds and the, and the inner workings of our, of our reasoning, God already knows it. And so God gives instruction and reveals the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, falls down and does homage before Daniel and his three Hebrew fellows. And he exalts them to prominent places in the kingdom. I told Shane this morning, favor ain't fair. I believe in divine favor, the favor of God, don't you? Favor's not fair. But then the Bible tells us a traumatic moment, a very climatic moment takes place. You and I could be on the edge of it today. So, Pastor, you're going to close this message eventually. Stay with me. Chapter number three, Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden image, Shane. A golden image. And he erects this golden image. And the, then once again, he gives a decree. His decree is this. When you hear music, you got to dance to the drum beat we're playing. And he said, and when you hear that music you got to fall down, and you got to worship the image that's made. The Scripture says that when that image had been erected, and the first time the music was played, all across the land of Babylon, people fell prostrate, and they worshiped the image. But three lone Hebrew boys stood up and stood out and refused to bow. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? I believe you're starting to catch where I'm going with this. There comes a moment you got to be willing to stand up for what you believe. Are y'all hearing me today? I believe that we are arriving at a place very similar to what we could see unfolding in Daniel chapter number 3. So the word got back to the king, king all throughout the land. Some have asked, why was Daniel not one of those that would, did Daniel bow? Daniel most likely was in the gate of the king and was not required to bow, or he was out of the area on business, one of the two. And so the scripture says that these three men were brought before the king, and the king by this time is furious in rage and in anger and hatred against these three boys because they have refused to obey his authoritative word. But see, these men are functioning in life by conviction. There is a reason why the three Hebrew boys refused to bow. Why is that, Pastor Brown? Tell me. Because the second commandment, chiseled in stone by the finger of God upon Mount Sinai, said you will not make an image and you will not bow before it. And these three Hebrew boys refused to bow. You say, Pastor Brown, what's the connection to the culture in which we live in today? Don't think, as you sit here today, embracing Christmas that's around us and upon us, and don't think that there's not a golden image that's being erected in America today because you're out. You're, there's a golden image that's being erected. The tyrannical far left demands that you bow before the image of BLM. Racial reparations and Marxist ideology and the destruction of the biblical family. Yeah, if you're going to be an American, you're going to have to bow before BLM. If you're white in color, you're a supremacist and you need to re-educate yourself and repent of your racism. Oh yeah, there's a golden image being formed in America today. Molech demands the blood of the innocents and abortion on demand. And it must be used to satisfy his thirst and government-funded abortion on demand is in the not-too-distant future. The golden image casts a rainbow shadow. You will allow the movement to seduce your children. Not only will you no longer be able to teach that the lifestyle is a choice or it's sinful behavior, you will have to affirm it or you will lose your nonprofit status or you will go to jail. The day will come when you as a parent will be charged for teaching the distinction in the sexes to your children. Oh, there's a golden image being erected in America today. 
that golden image promises everything is free. Healthcare is free, school property, school is free, property is free, everything is free, everything is public. All you got to do is bow and worship the image. Let me tell you, there's a golden image being erected in America, and the question is, are you going to bow? I love the response of the three Hebrew children, and Lord, if you'll put it on the screen, we're going to look at it as I do soon hope to close this message today. Daniel chapter number 3, what was the verses that I gave you? 17, was it 16, 17, and 18? I think it is. Let's look at it real quickly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the king looked at them and said, you're going to bow. He said, we're going to give you our answer what we're going to do. We're not even afraid to answer this in this matter. Verse number 17 says this, look at it. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But verse number 18, but if not. Let it be known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. I don't know who you want to be numbered with today, but I want to be numbered with three Hebrew boys that squared their shoulders back and said, my God is able to deliver me. But if he doesn't deliver me, I want you to know I'm not bound before the golden image that's being erected in America today. Are y'all out there today, church family? Now listen, this is as real as it gets. This is not a smoke screen. This is not all. This is just some deranged preacher in America. Let me tell you, these things are in the future. And we're going to have to decide. We're going to have to decide. I close with one last final example real quickly. Just two chapters over. I won't develop it as deep as I did. Daniel chapter number 6. 25 plus years have passed. Nebuchadnezzar's deceased. Whether it's his grandson or someone else who's now on the, who was on the throne, now it's actually Darius the Mede. This is the famous passage of Scripture where Darius the Mede gives the decree. Listen to this because I'm going to summarize it very quickly. The decree is given because of people wanting to manipulate Daniel's privilege that he has in the kingdom, his rights and privilege that he gained through his fellowship, through, through the favor of God upon his life. They manipulate Darius the king to put out a decree that you can't pray to anybody, any god, except for to the king. Now that seems extreme to you and I, but many monarchs were worshipped as gods in those days. And so, so many people just fell right in place. And the Bible says, you go back and read Daniel 6, and if you can't get, if you can't get stirred when you read that, then something's wrong with you. You're already falling asleep in a most difficult and tumultuous time. And you need to, as if we had read farther in Romans 13, you need to awaken out of your sleep. Because in Daniel chapter number 6, when Daniel heard about the decree that had been written and signed, you know what Daniel did? Daniel went home. He opened his door towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, Daniel, by now the aged man of God, lifts his eyes toward heaven. And he begins to pray. As he faces Jerusalem. You say, Pastor, why did he face Jerusalem? Because in the law, in the scriptures, excuse me, King Solomon had said, when my people are taken captive by foreign land, in a foreign land, if they will humble themselves and pray, if they will look towards this temple, and they will look towards Jerusalem, then God said, I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. And Daniel wasn't going to let the edict of the king Prevent him from calling upon the one true king. And I want you to know today, as I thought about this very quickly today, as I, summer, as I conclude this message, we had two accounts. The first, the three Hebrew broke the law of the king by refusing to bow. The second, Daniel broke the law of the king by refusing not to bow. Both suffered government persecution and were violently handled. The law was breached, judgment was meted out. But I didn't give you the time. you got to read it on your own. But when they threw those three Hebrew men in a fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar got up off of his throne. He saw the dead bodies of the soldiers that had thrown them into the fire because it had burned so hot. And he looked, and he saw three Hebrew men standing in the fire. And then he said, I saw a fourth, and the fourth looked like the son of the living God. I want you to know today that we have the same God who will send his angel, I believe that with all my heart, who will send his angel to preserve us if we're willing to stand up for what we believe. Won't y'all stand up in this house today in the name of the Lord. Romans chapter number 13 
Here's my word to you today. Romans 13 is it something you're going to have to settle in your heart. You're going to have to settle in your heart what side of this you're going to be on because the line is becoming more definitive every day. It's becoming more definitive every day. The historical record reveals that some were preserved, some perished, but all are commended for their faith and their willingness to stand up for what they believe. I'm asking you, and I'm your pastor today, what about you? What about you? Is your faith set in God? Do you understand the ramifications of refusing to bow before the golden image that's been erected in America today? Christ suffered for us, but he refused to bow. What about you? What about you? In the days ahead, I believe the trial of your faith will determine its sincerity. Did y'all hear that? In the days ahead, the trial of your faith is going to determine the sincerity of it. I'm not a critical person, and I think anybody that knows me, some of you are new to our church, you may think Pastor Brown's a critical person. I'm not a critical person. And, and I know it's easy for me to defend my own character by saying that. But those that know me really well know that I'm not a, a critical person. But I want you to know that there are churches today that they refuse. They, for whatever reason, are remaining silent on these very controversial subjects. But I stand today in the backdrop of the Black Robe Regiment. The Black Robe Regiment that charged the people of the American Revolution and prepared them for 50 years so that when the time came and it was time to make a definitive decision, they knew what side they would be on. That's what I'm attempting to do. I'm simply attempting to charge you. Decisions are being made. Lines are being drawn. You're going to have to decide what side that you're going to be on at some time in the future. I just hope and pray that you have a conviction that's based upon the Word of God. Did y'all hear me today? Listen, this is real. For church in America, church has just been a place of passivity for so long. We just come and we just sing and we just, we pass out gifts and food at Christmas and that's, we're just benevolent and that's all the world wants you to be. They'll be happy. If all we do is give out Christmas gifts, run a food pantry, if all we do is those things, you know, let's get a latchkey program started, let's do all these things, and then, that, then the world will just tuck us away in a little four walls and they'll just be happy. You're just a, but the moment that you go out in the public and you said, you know what, I'm going to live my life to a conviction that's based upon the Word of God. I'm to be salt and I'm to be light and I'm not going to be intimidated by your accusations. I've got the answer that you need and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, Jesus said, he said, if they hated you, me, they're going to hate you as well, right? But let me tell you, we still have the responsibility. We hold forth the word of God. This is the only thing that can change somebody's life. We have to be unashamed. And I preach with all my heart and my passion to you. I just can't sing the Christmas songs during this unsettled time right now. My conviction is to warn you. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to go to bed at night tonight, and I'll have thoughts in my mind. A thousand devils will run into the bedroom that, I, that, I, that I'll sleep in, and they'll be in my mind, and they'll condemn, and they'll belittle, and those thoughts will be in my mind. And I'll have to fight them off in the name of Jesus and say, God, I stood up, and I taught the people what I believe. And I want you to know today, I believe a golden image is being erected right under our noses. And at one time, it's not now, but in the not-too-distant future, you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to bow before that image or not? Know what you believe and know why you believe it. The trying of your faith, the trying of your faith. Father of heaven, our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. We're praying in this house. God, I don't have a good place to end a message like this. I couldn't even come up with a title, Father. I lacked just something catchy, a phrase or something. But I stand with a conviction. God, and I challenge my church family. And God, I, I know that there are those among us today that say, Pastor, this is just, you know, I've got the children, the little children beside me, and you're so strong. I, it's going to affect them as well, Father. Help them to see that. 
It's going to affect with the, the things that are coming, the things that are at work, that are happening right now in front of us is going to affect every part of our lives. And yet we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we have to be, we have to be convinced that this is the Word of God. The he, three Hebrew boys stands out to me today, Father, as three young men who refuse to bow. And I say, God, even with what Paul wrote in Romans 13 and what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, help me to have the right application of that text so that I won't find myself on the wrong side of history. Help those that are in my listening audience today, watching online or those gathered in this room today, help us to wrestle these things out in our spirit to know, God, of what side that we should be on in the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to be able to process these things, rightly dividing the word of truth. Lord, if there be any person under the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you through the free pardon of sins and through the blood of Jesus Christ, I want to give that person the opportunity. I don't want to send them away. I don't want them to go out of this place today and not say and be able to say, Pastor Brown never even pointed me towards the tree. He never pointed me towards the bleeding Savior. That would be wrong because I do so right now. I stand before you today as the pastor of this assembly, challenging you today in the name of Jesus. If there's sin in your life and you know it, you know it, your heart is convicted of sin, look to the one that died on the tree. Look to Jesus and his death, his blood, his burial, and his resurrection. Put your faith in him today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn to God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Have an authentic faith, not a counterfeit faith. Have a living faith in a living Savior in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I bless every man, every woman, every boy and every girl under the sound of my voice. I send them out, Father, in the name of Jesus as sheep among wolves. I send them out as salt and as light. I send them out, God, to hold forth the word of truth, to hold forth the way of life, to hold forth, Father, the teachings of the scriptures, to be a bright and a shining light, to be unashamed and what they believed, and also, Father God, to be firmly convinced that what they believe is the Word of God. That's my prayer. I pray that nobody takes what I've preached today, Father, without wrestling it out in faith and in prayer and in studying the Scriptures to just see if these things are so, to see if these things are so. That's our prayer, Father, in the name of Jesus. I bless the people today. And I leave them with a clear conscience. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen and amen.